Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Your paper's neat now. <laughs> it's so neat. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Glacius here with Dara Lynn and Ezra Klein. Uh, we got a, 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 a tight timeline today, so we're going to... Although- before, I do want to say, oh. um, looking for an audio engineer. Oh, that's Work right. on the weeds in the Ezra Klein Show. Um, if you are interested, if you love engineering audio and you like these shows, or you like engineering audio and you love these shows, voxmedia.com. There's a careers page. You will find the job listing there. Again, that is voxmedia.com. Uh, we would love to work with you. That's a great idea. Yes. Great point. Creating jobs. Also looking for a job this week is Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> nice. That was actually well done. Hoping for an elevation to the Supreme Court, sort of the weeds of judging um, the elite (laughs) there. Um, (laughs) And things seem to have hit a snag. Yeah. So if things had proceeded according to plan on Thursday, the Senate Judiciary Committee would be taking its vote to approve the nomination of Kavanaugh. Nothing there indicated that that would be anything other than a party line vote. You know, majority passed the nomination. Frankly, whether or not they approved the nomination, it would still be sent to the Senate floor. But it looked like Kavanaugh was en route to getting confirmed, certainly with a majority, maybe even with a couple of Democrats from red states getting pressured to get on board. Because while red state Democrats can feel a little bit of freedom not working with Donald Trump as a human being, they may feel a certain amount of need to be reaching across the aisle for a qualified judge who, by all appearances, seemed to be a man of character. Except that on Sunday, after some weird rumors that had been percolating around Capitol Hill and from there leaked into the political press that made it clear that something was weird but didn't really say what it was, a woman who's a research psychologist named Christine Blasey Ford uh, in California spoke to the Washington Post and allowed them to print her story in which she alleges that Brett Kavanaugh and another man, when they were 17, at a party, secluded her, got her in a room. Kavanaugh pinned her down, tried to take off her clothes and force himself on her. Both of the men were stumbling drunk and that the other man, like, knocked into them and ended up allowing this woman to wriggle free. She had attempted to scream and Kavanaugh had put his hand over her mouth. And it is... An extremely stark story. This, of course, raises the question of why this hadn't come out sooner, given that he's been named as the nominee for several months. Professor Ford said to the Post that she had actually been dithering about this for some time. She had reached out to the Post before he was actually nominated in June when he was mentioned as a possible replacement for Kennedy. She had sent a letter to her congresswoman, Anna Eshoo, who had sent that on to Dianne Feinstein, who had sent it on to the FBI as part of Kavanaugh's background check, presumably, that she had not really wanted to come out and subject herself to the kind of criticism and picking holes in the story and often character assassination that 
often follows women who speak up publicly about sexual assault. It's currently following this woman. <laughs> yes, it, as it happens. So happening when it did and happening kind of in the form that it did with a name delegation, the Post saw notes from therapy sessions from several years ago in which this account had been included, although Kavanaugh's name was not included in those notes. Blasey Ford's husband says that she mentioned his name. Other friends have since come forward saying that she talked to them in recent years about an encounter that involved someone who was a federal judge and could be a Supreme Court justice someday. There's some corroboration here, although there isn't and is never going to be the kind of like DNA testing dispositive proof. But could we talk about that piece of it for a minute? Because I think this is a part that makes it very, very difficult. Yeah. According to Ford, the alleged assault happened roughly 35 years ago. She says she didn't tell anybody about it at all until 2012. And what she says has happened here is that she was assaulted in high school and it traumatized her and it affected her relationships and her sense of safety and security really forever. And it's only later in life that she began to deal with it. And as she began to deal with it – the guy who assaulted her um, was rising and becoming more and more of a star and this had never been addressed. This is tough for a, a couple of reasons. And, and one is that a lot depends on whether the assault happened in the way – like how you think about Kavanaugh and how – and we'll talk about this. You know, A lot depends on, on knowing something close to the truth of the, the situation. And I'm very much inclined to believe Ford who you know was talking about this years ago. But – One thing we really know, and it affects all sides of the story, is that memory is an incredibly unreliable device, particularly over 30, 35 years. And so one of the things that is scary for me as a journalist just writing about this is it's possible that she's misremembering things. It's also possible that Kavanaugh and the other guy named Mark Judge are completely misremembering things. It's possible that things have been overwritten, merged, right? Like the judicial system, people have done great work on the unreliability of eyewitness accounts even that are recent. Over long periods of time, things get much, much more difficult. There's a great, uh, I'll say, by the way, great revisionist history episode from Malcolm Gladwell in this season about Brian Williams and the way that it appears his memories of that helicopter incident that ended up ending his time on the NBC Nightly News, like, appear to have overwritten over a course of years. He was telling it correctly, then he was telling it incorrectly, and, like, he probably never actually lied. He just confused himself. This is very important, too, because I think one of the questions here is – We are not in a world where what Kavanaugh has said is, this happened in high school. It was a terrible thing I did. I have sought forgiveness. I have changed as a human. He's saying this never happened. I was never there. I had nothing to do with this. And if he's lying about that, that's very problematic. And that's not about something that happened 35 years ago. It's something he's doing now. Also, if it did happen and he's like genuinely has written himself out or does not believe – like he's – it's hard because I don't know how we're going to find – a truth that the political system can agree on in order to make judgments here. Yeah, I think we're probably going to spend a lot of this episode disentangling moral standards from political standards because I agree with you that we're not going to find a truth that the political system can agree on. That said, what strikes me about the vehemence of Kavanaugh's denial versus the tentativeness of Ford's allegations, like Mm – While Kavanaugh has himself only issued a pretty pro forma denial through the White House, Orrin Hatch, the senator, talked to him yesterday and Hatch came out saying, well, Kavanaugh denies he was even at that party. Right. Which is 
raises questions because Ford didn't identify a particular time or location of the party. She thinks it happened in 1982. She's not even sure about that. She thinks that it happened at a house near the country club where she would have been hanging out in, you know, suburban Maryland. There isn't enough to go on for Kavanaugh to say for sure that he wasn't at that party unless he never attended parties where parents weren't home or never attended parties in that area. And what we know circumstantially about, you know, who Kavanaugh's friends were during that time, what we've seen in his yearbook is that he appears to have run with a crowd that was not averse to underage drinking, so to speak, that it seems unlikely that Brett Kavanaugh would say, oh, there weren't parents there? Well, then I'm not going. So you reach a point where you look at, you know, this very tentative recollection and go, well, Maybe Ford is hedging because she's not sure that it was him. Maybe she's hedging because she doesn't want to – like you could say maybe she's hedging because she doesn't want to get caught in a lie. But you can also look, in this, look at this and go, after 35 years, like how is it that he's certain yep. that he didn't do this thing if he knew that he was drinking heavily during this period, if he knew that after 35 years memories change, if the way that this happened would have by definition left more of an imprint on her than it did on him. So the kind of failure to open himself up to the possibility that even though he hasn't been dealing with this all this time in the way she has, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, is really something that I personally am struggling with. It's also, you know, from what we can tell, Chuck Grassley is setting up a process to, I would say, appease Susan Collins by saying they did something to look into this that seems very de minimis, right? Like they're going to hold a hearing at which Kavanaugh is going to testify and she's going to testify. They're not bringing in judge, the other guy who she says was there. They're not trying to bring in uh, the two other boys who she says were at the party, although not in the room. They're not bringing in an investigator of any kind. You know, I think in a case like this, right, like an alleged attempted rape from the early 1980s, I don't think anything you're going to do would produce like proof beyond a reasonable doubt level evidence of anything one way or the other. But you could try to structure a process that sheds the most light on what people's memories of this are and what it is they're trying to say happened or didn't happen. And it doesn't seem like this is what they are doing. And you hear in the statements from, you know, not just from the White House, but from Senator Hatch and others that the vast majority of Senate Republicans have made up their minds about this case. And the vast majority of Senate Democrats had made up their minds about Kavanaugh before this allegation came to light, right? Which is not Like, that's not bad faith on their part. They looked at Kavanaugh's record as a judge, decided they didn't want this guy on the Supreme Court. This extra allegation is just an extra thing that is out there. I mean, that's also the case for Republicans too, right? They'd already made their decisions based on Kavanaugh's record as a judge. Right. But I mean, in particular, they're like, now the majority of them have prejudged the facts of this specific allegation. And, you know, I mean, I guess that's that's their right, right? But there's very few people out there saying, okay, to me, Kavanaugh's suitability genuinely hinges entirely on the question of what happened that night in 1983. And so I want a process that, like, really 
gets to the bottom of that, right? You have a large group of Republicans who are trying to get this done with as quickly as possible. You have a large group of Democrats who are against Kavanaugh separately from these allegations. You have some red state Democrats who I think honestly are glad for this to give them a reason to vote against Kavanaugh because it solves a kind of political problem for them. And then you have maybe a couple Republicans, right? Like everything in the Trump era winds up coming back down to Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski on the one hand and Jeff Flake and Bob Corker on the other hand because they're like the swing constituencies. And the four of them all on one level or other like indicated that they needed to hear more about this. And so that's what's happening, right? And it's a process whose purpose is for Republican leadership to get the wavering Republicans like back on the bus, not really to elucidate the truth about anything. I think one, I agree with this. And and I think there's a lot in there that I want to come back to. But I do want to make a note about the process because this is something that reporters have begun reporting on and, and tweeting about. There's not a single Republican woman on Senate Judiciary, not one. There has never been, in fact. There's never been. So I I don't know, to be honest, exactly how they're going to structure the hearings Monday, assuming they even happen Monday as scheduled. Um, there's been some talk about maybe Grassley is having trouble getting in touch with four. That, that seems – We'll see, right? Um, it'll become clear. Although, you know, it's, it's open. She may also, you know, it, it, it's an open thing. She may not want to testify. That may be a decision she makes too. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But assuming we have the hearings that we expect to have, one of the things that's beginning to get reported is a lot of Senate Republicans are very uncomfortable with how this is going to look. Because the way it's being set up is that Republicans have gotten themselves into the space where what they need to do is discredit this accuser of the guy who they want to show has a spotless moral character. His position is not, maybe this happened, but it was 35 years ago. If I did something like this, I am so sorry. His position is it never happened. My accuser is um, a liar. So you're going to have what? You know, Chuck Grassley and X number of Republican men on television in a super closely watched hearing trying to like cross-examine uh woman who's, you know, going to be working through something that's clearly traumatized on TV. It's a very tricky thing that's going to happen here. It can go bad in a lot of ways for a lot of different factions in this. But what what's coming, like, to be honest, like, turns my stomach a little bit. It, it, like, just, like, thinking about it, it's just, it's going to be a very bad moment, I think. Who it's bad for, I think we'll see. But but I, I could just see a lot of ways it's going to go bad. And it's one reason I, I do wonder if it's going to happen. I think a lot of people are looking for a way out. Um, I don't think Kavanaugh is going to withdraw. But I, I do think there's something here that at the moment, like nobody has a plan. Like that is, I think, above all else. No one knows what they're doing. And there's not even a clear standard here. One thing that I do think is really important is that a lot of Republicans, their view, they have not done the Kavanaugh defense. They've actually done the – this was 35 years ago. It's a single accusation. Like this doesn't clear a bar that should derail – you know, somebody like the the capstone of somebody's adult career. Like, even if it did happen, it shouldn't X, right? And then there's Kavanaugh. It didn't happen. And then there's the other positions like we need to learn more to just like figure out even what to think about it. If you read Republicans on this right now, like their view is like none of this is on the level. You can see Eric Erickson saying this is all really about abortion and every single 
Republican nominee in the future will face a late-breaking sexual assault charge, which, like, is clearly not true. But it, I think, does go to the point that, like, at this point, the, like, the late-breaking thing is putatively a debate about this one accusation. And is it true? And if it is true, like, how would we know? And if we do know, then is Kavanaugh lying? And does he know that he's, you know, like, you kind of run it out. But there's not even a – like nobody has set up a bar. Like Corker and Flake and – like their view is not like if it is true, then – like nobody knows what happens if they like even – like let's say it's proven that Kavanaugh was at the party that he's apparently told Orrin Hatch he was not at. Then what? Like nobody's quite explained yet. I think that what you can extrapolate that to is what we've heard from some other conservative intellectuals and pundits including Caitlin Flanagan – you know, she's she's known for being something of a contrarian on issues of, you know, gen- feminism and gender relations, published an essay last night about an encounter that she had had during a similar time period that, you know, had certain similarities with what Ford is alleging and said, I believe Ford, the fact that he didn't apologize, that he, yep. you know, that he is continuing to go through life does seem to be a disqualifying matter of character. And Caitlin Flanagan is not a conservative legal scholar. She's not like a Federalist Society fellow or anything. But I've definitely seen some, you know, never-Trump conservatives, the exact types who will begrudgingly admit that staffing the bench with conservative judges is the best thing that Trump has done and were entirely pro-Kavanaugh in every other respect, saying, wow, this is this is now bigger than this particular nominee, this is something that we actually have to take seriously as a matter of character. And that gets into questions of when you think a judge's character matters. I think the the thing that we rarely treat as text, although it is text, is that the swing senators in this case, the like Collins and Murkowski and Flake and Corker, you can't predict where they're going to fall as a matter of policy, partly because they're senators and so individual votes matter a lot and partly because they're swing votes and so have gotten used to people kind of coming to them and asking for things. Often, frankly, where they land on stuff is a matter of ego, right? Like both Collins and Flake voted for tax reform because they personally had gotten promises from Mitch McConnell that Mitch McConnell then broke. But that means that they are also more likely to see Brett Kavanaugh as a matter of character than as a matter of a slate of jurisprudential opinions. You know, Susan Collins was getting a lot of pressure from progressives because despite her having said she wouldn't vote for a nominee who would overturn Roe v. Wade and Kavanaugh bearing all the earmarks of someone who, if he were on the Supreme Court, would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, she said, well, I don't believe that he's going to do that because he's told me that Roe has said a lot. There's a certain amount of like personal trust and character there that I think is more characteristic of someone who has the privilege to see politics as personal. And that kind of view of Kavanaugh as an independent moral actor is what is really under threat here. Can we take a break and then dive a little more into that? Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Something that has struck me as as we've come into this, like I got to say, like I usually try really hard to not pay attention to Supreme Court confirmation hearings because like if I was a senator, all I need to know about Brett Kavanaugh is that he was recommended by Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society as a good judge, which means he'll be a terrible judge. And like you can just end it, you know, goodbye there. But since these allegations came up, I've been looking back at the record of Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. And it does seem to me that he really distinguished himself from Neil Gorsuch in a real lack of candor on a wide range of subjects, right? This started with his like opening statement after Trump uh, introduced him, right, where he didn't just like stick to banal stuff. He did this like puffing Trump up shtick that I think we've learned is like the way ambitious Republicans get ahead these days is they say things about Donald Trump that aren't true, right? And that was like Brett Kavanaugh's introduction to the American public was saying that nobody before had ever consulted as widely as Donald Trump had, which like is not true. He said that Donald Trump has shown his respect for the importance of an independent judiciary, which, like, we know is not true. Then in the confirmation hearings, you know, it turned out once the the committee confidential documents started coming out, it turned out that Kavanaugh in his previous confirmation had misled the committee about his role in another judge called William Pryor's confirmation hearings, that he had misled uh, the committee about his role in some pilfered emails related to yet another judicial confirmation. And then this led to some like hot takes from liberals. Oh, he committed perjury, which led to the inevitable hot countertakes where actual lawyers are like, no, like you might think that perjury means you lie under oath to Congress, but like actually perjury occurs when federal prosecutors railroad someone with few legal resources and like you can always beat a perjury rap if you're as fancy as Brett Kavanaugh. But like in an ordinary language sense, like he's a liar. You know, and it's not the worst thing in the world. Like all of our elected officials have like 
something like that where they're spinning people, they get caught out, you know, for Pinocchios. Um, But it's actually kind of unusual for a Supreme Court justice, right? And it goes back to an earlier phase in this whole saga, which was like when Donald Trump was down to his three-judge shortlist, right? It was this guy Hardiman, Amy Coney Barrett, and Brett Kavanaugh, and Mitch McConnell, who had worked with Kavanaugh when he was uh, staff secretary in the Bush administration, who shepherded his confirmation process through before, who was aware that there was this outstanding paperwork issue. Like he said to the White House, like, don't nominate Brett Kavanaugh. Like, this will be a much harder confirmation than these other two judges who are also good. And Trump, for whatever reason, like, went ahead with Kavanaugh, right? And, like, now we have this harassment thing. And, of course, nobody nobody knows. But, like, I am willing to credit the idea that Kavanaugh is just telling bald-faced lies about this situation in a way I ordinarily wouldn't be. Like, I would say there has to be something something going on here about alcohol and memory or blah, blah, blah. But, like, we know that Brett Kavanaugh, to advance his career, has in the very recent past adopted the just, like, say the sky is purple, if that's what I think the actors, relevant actors, want to hear. And on the one hand, it's like, who cares what I think? Because Brett Kavanaugh could have not raped anybody or told any of these lies, and I still wouldn't think he should be a good judge. But, like, it's a striking moment to me in what I see as, like, an ongoing Trump-era Republicans, like, shedding of any kind of standard that they're, like, determined to drag this, like, particular, like, semi-comatose nomination over the finish line when they could just put in somebody else. But this to me is what is actually really interesting. And it's why I have focused a little bit on this question of can we can we find things out that the political system will credit about what happened? Because I honestly was surprised when Kavanaugh began escalating the level of denials he was offering, right? Given what the story was, given that there's a really good Twitter thread by a writer named Sandra Newman uh, who's done work on, on false rape accusations. And just going through like what are the what are the characteristics you usually see in those accusations? And and the point she was making is you really don't see them in this one. Like false rape accusations, she was saying, have a sort of theatric quality. They're like they're very villainous. So the way people act in them is very villainous. It's not bumbling. It's not like two kids who are laughing and like his friend is alternately saying like, you know, keep going or stop. And, you know, they're like keep jumping on each other because they're roughhousing while they're drunk. And, you know, it's not created in a structure where you can sort of write it off as like kids being like bad but dumbasses. It usually reads uh, again like much more like a like a villainous act. Um, I don't want to say villainous act because this was also a villainous act, uh, but it's black and white is sort of her point. And it usually doesn't come out much later. Like this doesn't bear any of the hallmarks of it. So Kavanaugh did not create space for this to have happened, which is again why it, like let's say they bring in the other two boys who were at the party, right? I, I, I don't know. It's not, not known to me if Ford has named those people or even like remembers who they were. But assuming she does and they can be found, if they say like, yes, I do remember this party where it was the four of us and her. And like, yeah, like some people, 
that's really bad, actually, because now Brett Kavanaugh is just lying. Um, and now you do have this, you know, I've written about this, but like now you do have this issue of character and him discrediting an accuser. And even if there is a memory issue, like as opposed to saying, you know, OK, like I need to like look into whether or not this happened because it was 35 years ago and I don't remember the stuff that clearly. He just like went right out and said like nothing like this has ever happened. And so – I think there's something very real here that could – like one of the things that could happen – and it's again why I like bring up – I think the structure of what's going to happen Monday if this hearing goes forward is very intense because the way the question has been framed for all of the Republicans out there saying what you did as a 17-year-old shouldn't count against you, although of course Donald Trump um, wanted to have a bunch of teenagers put to death for a crime they didn't commit uh, with the Central Park Five. Nevertheless, like while there are a lot of Republicans saying – this stuff shouldn't count against you. Um, they've now gotten themselves and Kavanaugh has gotten them into a position where they're either going to have to discredit this accuser in public, which they um, could really, really backfire and also like may not even be doable because she's plausibly telling the truth, probably telling the truth. And on the other hand, like if something else can come out, like I don't understand how he recovers from that, right? Even if it just looks likely that all this happened, I don't understand how he recovers from that. I think that, you know, again, the political truth of this is going to be murkier than to a certain extent the moral truth. And from that, I, I'm not saying like, oh, just because he has been accused, he should assume that this is correct and he should step down. What I mean by that is that you're right. The reflexiveness and the escalation of the denial aren't what – like he had an alternative. Yes. He, he had plenty of alternatives. He could have said, I don't remember anything like this happening um, I look forward to hearing more details. He could have said, you know, this was a period in my life when I was making a lot of bad decisions. I was hanging out with a bad crowd. I was drinking a lot. I thought that those decisions affected no one but me. I'm horrified to discover that I may have hurt someone very badly. Yep. Even though I do not recall this and I am not sure that it happened, I'm reaching out to her to make amends. Like he could be bigger than the allegation. And frankly, in the last year, in the Me Too era, we've like a lot of men that I know have, particularly men, have kind of gone through and done an inventory on their own culpability in matters of sex in kind of a similar way of like, wow, okay, I think of myself as a good guy. I know that I've never willingly violated anyone's consent, you know, deliberately. But let me go back and think about my past and question my idea that because I'm a good guy, I've never done anything wrong. Like, Kavanaugh doesn't appear to have, you know, his response to that has not demonstrated a willingness to believe that someone who is a moral human being, who, like, thinks of himself as a good guy, who maybe at this point is, you know, a morally upstanding person who respects women, would be able to have done this thing. Like, this kind of brings me back to Alex Kaczynski, who was the judge in the Ninth Circuit for whom Kavanaugh clerked, for whom a gajillion people clerked, was a big, big mentor of Kavanaugh's, very well known in conservative and libertarian legal circles, and who is the only federal judge to have lost a seat, essentially, because of sexual harassment allegations, which came out late last year. And frankly, that was the least surprising thing in any of the Me Too allegations to those of us who even I, – I've never been to law school, and I'm still hearing stories from people who heard things in law school about don't clerk for Kaczynski, the environment of his clerk rooms was notorious for being this extremely just uncomfortable environment for women, but one in which like just sexual jokes were sent around all the time. He had an email list of with a lot of former clerks where a lot of offensive jokes were sent around. 
Kavanaugh was asked about Kaczynski at his confirmation hearings and said that he never saw any kind of sexual harassment and that he had, you know, that he was shocked when the allegations came out because he had had no idea. It's not implausible that he had never noticed anything. I have seen some former Kaczynski clerks go that he's clearly lying. Like, maybe he was not lying. Maybe Brett Kavanaugh just wasn't paying attention. But the fact that Brett Kavanaugh is now saying, well, I wasn't paying attention, so it doesn't reflect on me as a human being, rather than, yeah, I wasn't paying attention. And in the months since those allegations have come out, I've searched myself and wondered why I didn't notice this thing that so many other people noticed, is really what strikes me as the kind of moral line that he is failing here, whether or not we can ever figure out what happened in 1982. I agree with that. I'm also, I've really been thinking hard about this. And how can a person be so sure as he claims to be? And then maybe, maybe when he testifies, there'll be like some rabbit he pulls out of his hat where like there's like clear evidence that Somehow this incident occurred on a very specific night where he wasn't there and we'll all be like, man, I'm I'm sorry this happened. But like if somebody were to say tomorrow that I had done something like this while so drunk that I was like unable to physically overpower a much smaller woman, I would find that very shocking. And I don't think that that has happened. But it's, like, also true that, like, I went to a lot of parties in high school. I drank a lot. You don't remember everything that happens in life under those circumstances. Everything that I think we know about Kavanaugh is that, like, he was a very heavy drinker as a college student, as a high school student. At a time when I saw a chart about this, uh, drinking among teenagers was much more prevalent in the early 80s. There was something like 40% of kids in surveys, 17-year-olds, said they'd had five or more drinks on one night within the past week. And I just, like, I don't know. There's like a level of un reflexiveness and definitiveness, like both about the Kaczynski thing where like he claims he doesn't remember having been on some email list that Kaczynski apparently like sent dirty jokes out to all the time. And like, I don't know, like is does he really just like amble through life, like not (laughs) noticing anything, but having perfect recall of everything that occurred while he was blackout drunk when he was 17? Or is there just a kind of you know, like life of privilege from Georgetown Prep to Yale and DKE and Yale Law School and the Federalist Society and these ongoing clerkships in which everyone all his life has been like saying how amazing Brett Kavanaugh is. And, you know, his mom was a judge. And, you know, he he was just like born to the manner of elite conservative politics, has spent his whole life like in that field, right? Like, you know, on Ken Starr's team in the Bush White House, on the short list for this and that and the other thing. And, like, the idea that any of these things that he's done were, like, when he was on Ken Starr's team, he was like, what we have to do is persecute a Democratic president over anything. And then later, like, in a celebrated Law Review article, he's like, oh, I was totally wrong about the one thing I ever did in my career. And, like, you just, just like, upward and upward and upward without ever, like— doing anything. And I have this is like such a non-meeting of the minds with people in the conservative legal world when I like try to think like, like what has Brett Kavanaugh done that is like to you impressive? 
right? Like other than just like, and it'll be like, well, he clerked for Alex Kaczynski, a well-known sexual harasser. He worked for Ken Starr, who a total failure. He was a high-ranking member of the George W. Bush administration. <laughs> I mean, it's pathetic. Well, you know what I mean? That's what you were saying uh, earlier about like there were these there were at least three judges who were, you know, largely indistinguishable from each other in terms of their records and likely positions from whom Trump picked. Like the real question for me in the next week is we've heard so much over the last several months about how the Federalist Society has perfected a system in which you can have a leg up and a career advantage in conservative legal circles for your career. You can get yourself good administration jobs and eventually an appointment to a judgeship because of the connections that you formed in the society. And yet, because your membership in the Federalist Society and your legal record is your token, you don't have to say anything so clearly ideological that it could scotch your Supreme Court nomination. Like, it's assumed that Brett Kavanaugh will overturn Roe, not because he said, I would overturn Roe, close quote, but because Leonard Leo recommended him, and we assume that Leonard Leo is going to recommend someone who Leonard Leo has confidence will overturn Roe. Like, if this machine is working so well, Brett Kavanaugh is not the only one who's jumped through all these hoops. You know, Barrett and and Hardiman would also be equally good nominees. And so the question for Republicans of why are you going to the mattresses on this case does tell us something because it raises the possibility that either they really do think that Democrats are out to get them and are going to put something spurious forward regardless of who would be the case, or they genuinely think that something like this could have happened in the past of an entire cohort of now male federal judges. I I do think there's an easier Occam's razor here, which is that we're only 49 days from the midterm election. Okay, fair enough. And yeah. that I yeah. think a lot of, I think a lot of Republicans just think that if their Supreme Court nominee collapses in scandal, you know, they could renominate somebody pretty quickly, but it's just not a good look and they just don't want it to happen. They like want this one pocketed before yeah, we're they all gotta that get much this. closer. And it's like they they bring up like what would they do, right? They bring up Barrett who I think is like was actually their strongest political pick, but is also the most um would be the most radicalizing of the three in another way by being just much more anti-Roe and yeah, like yeah. much more clearly right. anti-Roe. Yeah. One of the things that I just do think is is lurking in this conversation, uh, again, to, to the point about how Republicans are, are absorbing this. When you read the defenses of Kavanaugh, a lot of them don't hinge on this idea that this never happened. A lot of them hinge on this idea that, you know, to, to the point you were just making, Dara, something like this could have happened to anybody. Right, which has its own very troubling implications about what they believe about male behavior and, and, and so on. But also, I think to phrase it generously, it's like this is one accusation, even if it's true it was a long time ago. And Democrats are going to try to take down any judge we put up and anybody could have something politically damaging in their past. So if it turns out they're that good at this, then it's like we need to we need to like break the thing before it, it keeps going. And one of the just like dimensions of this that I just think is is weirdly underplayed, although it makes more sense if your party nominated Donald Trump to become president, is that nobody's entitled to a Supreme Court seat. It is entirely reasonable to say 
that there are things in someone's past that should not keep them from having like an adulthood, even like a successful, respectable adulthood. And also maybe they don't clear the extraordinarily high bar to be one of the nine people with a lifetime appointment to the U.S. Supreme Court. And for all the reasons Matt has laid out, I don't think that Throughout this process, Kavanaugh has distinguished himself as a man of character, even before this accusation, distinguished himself as one of the, like, the truly great legal minds of his generation, distinguished himself as anything except what I think he really was meant to be, which is reliable, like a reliable pick who happened to appeal to Donald Trump. We can't know for sure, but probably because he had some idiosyncratic views on the idea that presidents should not be criminally prosecuted or investigated while in office. And he has and because some very he expansive personal views. loyalty in Anthony Kennedy. Right. And that as well. Exactly. He was a Kennedy clerk and there's there's been some reporting though. There's also been some denials that Kennedy said, yeah, like I will resign if you seriously consider or even like name Kavanaugh on my replacement. But all that said, like uh, just like again, I, I do think there's this point that I don't think it would be crazy the idea that you have extraordinarily high bar for who is on the Supreme Court. Now, because of the way this is working and midterms and other things, like what people just want is their person on the Supreme Court, it is just not obviously the case that having people get disqualified for the Supreme Court for things that they would not be disqualified for more normal jobs for is somehow crazy. I mean, for no other reason that, that this is like one of the most powerful jobs in the world and it's a lifetime appointment judging the law. And I recognize Kavanaugh has been a judge before, but the Supreme Court is just different. The idea that you'd have a high bar for it is not crazy. But I also think, you know, there's obviously a particular partisan politics to Kavanaugh, right? But even before these Kavanaugh allegations came out, right, we had this uh, Jen Gomeshi article in the New York Review of Books, and we had a, an essay also by uh, John Hockenberry, both uh, about their sort of experiences losing their jobs. There's a brewing storm of sentiment that like, okay, Harvey Weinstein getting fired and cast out of polite society was the right thing to do, but that Me Too has gone way too far, right? Like that the in general holding men responsible for things that they did with impunity in the past, like, is a bad idea that I would say to cast the most generous possible construal on what this backlash is saying, it's like there ought to be a Me Too amnesty and a new, incredibly clear set of guidelines promulgated. And we can agree that going forward, if one violates these guidelines, there could be consequences, but that, like, the past is the past. And I think you see it to an extent with Kavanaugh that like if you look at the popular culture of the early 1980s, it's clear that like what I guess we would call date rape now was sort of normalized behavior at that point in time. Like 16 Candles I think is like the clearest example of this where like there are things depicted that are clearly supposed to be funny to the audience, but that like are horrifying to a modern sensibility. I think the craziest version of this is that Bill Cosby made jokes about slipping women's Spanish fly in his comedy routines, and then like later turns out was constantly drugging and raping women. Right. And I and I think like what some of the old man senators who are on Kavanaugh's side, and but like also some of the old man liberals who, you know, want to bring back Al Franken and stuff are saying on some level is that, like, 
you just shouldn't be able to take somebody down with old allegations of sleazy behavior. That is such a useful clarifying framework for me because I've been a little bit frustrated at the kind of Me Too has gone too far side kind of having their cake and eating it too, right? Because they're simultaneously saying, well, we don't believe that this is an offense so terrible that someone should be ostracized for life, that all their friends should abandon them, that that they shouldn't be able to get a job, that their life should be ruined, etc. At the same time, they're usually saying, and by the way, these allegations are not as bad as you think they are. Generally, the concept of kind of reconciliation and repentance involves a period in which you accept having sinned and forgive, you know, and and seek amends in some way. Religion has a particular framework for this, which is generally, I think, what a lot of people would be drawing on as kind of their nearest analog. It's not the only way we can do things. But usually before being reintegrated into the community, you have to accept that something has been done wrong, that you have violated a norm, and that you are going to hold that in future, and that you understand that your violation of the norm has had consequences. So kind of saying simultaneously, well, we don't believe that this norm violation should have this level of punishment, and he didn't violate the norm at all— isn't how you actually have a conversation to move forward. It means that we get stuck in the did it happen or didn't it happen world when everyone involved appears to agree that the really hard question is how strongly do we want to disapprove of this as a society? What are the punishments that we should meet out? Should we be refusing to give someone a Supreme Court seat because of this? Is it the kind of sin that would validate that? I think that's a super important point. And I do think it's worth making this point as well, which is that What we are undergoing societally with Me Too, we are reassessing correctly how seriously we take sexual assault and harassment as a crime, right? Like it's not boys will be boys. It's a crime. It's a thing you can't do. And I think the thing you just said, Dara, is really important. Let's say it came out. I'm not going to use Kavanaugh here. Let's let's say there was a Supreme Court nominee who looked normal and was headed towards confirmation. Merrick Garland? (laughs) <laughs> no, for, give, for, for you'll hear what I'm about to say and why I'm not using Hypothetical, so we're not libeling it. Right. Oh, fair enough. And it came out that despite a totally exemplary adulthood, when they were 17, they participated in a white supremacist assault of someone. That would be disqualifying, right? Like you would not survive that unless you would like spend the rest of your life atoning and, you know, in, in, in anti-racism movements. Conversely, let's say it came out that when they were 17, they had done – Mushrooms. Right. Barack Obama admitted to cocaine use when he was in college, right? I think we've like moved to a point where we're like, kids might do some drugs and it probably shouldn't derail the rest of their lives. Let's say it came out that you were a drug dealer, right? That you dealt opioids to people in your hometown. Well, I'm not exactly sure how we would rate that at this point. One of the things we are going through is like a reevaluation of this kind of crime. And so I, I recognize like it's very painful. I mean, Democrats went through a version of this with Franken, where there's still a lot of controversy within the party, but there was a decision made among Senate Democrats led by Senator Gillibrand and others that w- Democrats are going to be clean on this, that even the sort of like borderline cases, they've decided that they're going to participate in saying that, nope, like we're going to take this much more seriously and you can't be part of super honorific um, positions like being a senator or Supreme Court justice if you have things that look like assault of women and sexual harassment of women in your in your background. And the thing with Kavanaugh, a lot of people are saying, well, like this shouldn't derail his career, right? You're hearing that from people and you're hearing that even from people who are a little bit in the middle on him personally but, but have sympathy. But 
like it's not about him. Like that's a thing about this whole Me Too movement. It's a thing about these like individual men. Like it's not about the individuals. It's not to say they're just a means to an end, but it is to say that as society reevaluates this, there are people whose records change amidst that, right? Like as in any big readjustment of social norms. And the idea that Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court hopes, um, again, if the evidence came out to say that, you know, he was there and did this and, and you know, and I, I think it's very plausible that some could. The idea that what happened here, it's, it's not like the idea that all the sympathy is about like him and his life as opposed to Ford, but also as opposed to we're now in politics. Like this is a Supreme Court nomination. It's part of our larger political conversations. And there's a larger political thing going on that I think even people were sympathetic to that thing. They're sympathetic to it like in general. They would like it to happen in some way that has no victims, right? Like we all – one of you said this a couple minutes ago. Maybe it was mad that like we like sort of declare day zero and like then we agree that from that day forward. But it happens – by instances being judged differently than they would have in the past on a moral framework that we think is a legitimate one that should have been understood to be a legitimate one then. And by the way, the stuff Kavanaugh did, if he did it, is not on the line. It's way over the line. Like it's it's physical and sexual assault. But I, I just think that this larger context just keeps getting missed. It's as if these are all individual things, but it's part of something that is bigger happening in society that if you agree with it, yeah, replacing Kavanaugh with – Barrett or Hardiman or just anybody, it's not that big of a deal. I think that the day zero concept is really useful because I don't think that it's quite a matter of changing norms. Like it is, but at the same time, that narrative obscures the fact that assuming Brett Kavanaugh did this, it makes perfect sense that Brett Kavanaugh never thought about it again, right? That like this was, you know, yes, 1982. Yes, this isn't something that Brett Kavanaugh is going to be lying awake at night going, gee, I did this really evil thing. We know that it affected Christine Blasey Ford a great deal, yeah. right? That it that she struggled academically and socially after it had happened. That's a story that we've become very familiar with over personal essays of the last, you know, year and before that, as women have said, look, I didn't think that this was worth telling anyone at the time because I didn't think it was a rape, but it really, really screwed with me psychologically and it really did have impacts in what I was able to do and imagine in my life. And so while I do think that, you know, what we're seeing there is a reflection of the norms at the time, right, where they didn't think that if they talked to anyone, they would meet with sympathy because they didn't think what happened to them had crossed a line that society would recognize as a moral one. You know, and the reason the day zero amnesty idea is weird to me is that clearly a lot of women have been able to talk about things that they had difficulty moving past that were a problem for their careers in the last year by saying, look, now that we can all agree that this is wrong, let's talk about it having happened to me. And so because it's not just about the, you know, do we give him a Supreme Court seat or not? But even do we talk about this as wrong? You know, do we have a whole hearing about it? Do we make this into this big thing? Because even just making an allegation is considered a character assassination if it's wrong. The idea of, well, we should all accept going forward that there are clear violations and people will be punished, but we should just throw the veil over anything that happened in the past doesn't acknowledge the extent to which, you know, if Brett Kavanaugh had been a woman and what what he's alleged to have done had happened to him, he wouldn't maybe currently be sitting up for a Supreme Court. And this is where I'm struck by the, like, total 
disempowerment structurally of women in Republican Party politics. Like, I'm looking at the 11 Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee who are all men. And I'm trying to think, like, in what universe would I conceivably assemble a panel of 11 men to discuss a topic? And, like, it just wouldn't happen, you know? Like, in, like, left of center circles, like, you just, like, you wouldn't do that, right? But, like, the assembly line from Leonard Leo to Donald Trump and John Kelly and Mark Short and Mitch McConnell and down to Chuck Grassley in the 11. There's like no women involved. It's not that there are no women in the Republican Party, but like it is a distinct minority and it is part— I would say there might be women staffers involved in this whole process, but but they're not, they haven't been the not key principles. Not at the highest levels. Yeah. And it is a actual principle of Republican Party politics that it would be wrong to look at that roster and say, we need to get Chrissy Hindsmith on this committee now that she is a United States senator, right? Like conservatives would not do that. Like they think that a big, terrible thing that liberals do is try to deliberately structure diverse groups of decision makers, right? And that this is a serious, ongoing moral injustice that is perpetrated whenever progressives hold institutional power, right? That they like elevate unqualified women and minorities over good people like Brett Kavanaugh. And that an important point of principle is that like if 11 white guys is what you got, like that you're good to go, right? And like, you know, you get certain judgments because as Darren was saying, right, like there's a big difference in perspective from older people. Like I think older men are experiencing Me Too as a tectonic and slightly unfair retroactive shifting of the rules on them. And women also see that the norms are shifting, but like what that means to them is very, very different and like they're just not present in the same kind of way. It's clear that in the Democratic caucus, right, that like the male members were a lot more comfortable with Al Franken than the women were. But there were both more women in that caucus and there was a sense that like their view – that it would be untenable. Right. There was actually base pressure in a way that Republicans didn't see with Roy Moore, for example. With mm-hmm, Roy Moore, mm-hmm. the pressure was coming from elite circles. It was not coming from the base saying, look, we need to get this guy out. And I mean, this is a context in which the Kavanaugh hearing goes forward. It's a party that has and supports Donald Trump as their president that has stood against – I mean, look, the Senate or the House could hold hearings into Donald Trump's apparently long pattern of sexual assault and they don't. Like it's a party that on a lot of levels has created an ideological framework and a personnel framework that makes it very hard to treat something like this seriously. I think it's going to get negotiated very badly here. Let's take another break. Uh, then Ezra's got to go, uh, but Darren and I are going to talk about a, a great white paper. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. 
This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So I was really excited when I saw Nora Gordon and Krista Ruffini's paper, School Nutrition and Student Discipline, Effects of School-Wide Free Meals, hit the NBER wires uh, because this is a topic that is uh, is personal to me. My son, Jose, recently started uh, preschool at our local public school in the District of Columbia. And, you know, we were learning about how the school works. And I was a little bit surprised to learn that, Breakfast and lunch are served sort of family style for the the preschool kindergartner, and um, it's free, and everybody is supposed to get the school breakfast and the school lunch. So I was like, oh, what's up with that? And it turned out that in one of these things that happened in the early Obama years, laws passed that people didn't pay attention to because bigger laws were also passing. And a law came, and it said that schools that have a large number of students who are eligible for free and discounted meals can go into what's called this community eligibility program in which everybody just gets the free lunch. And the idea of this was to both simplify the administration, right, so you don't need to make families fill out all kinds of paperwork, uh, secondarily to increase uptake, uh, you know, so that everybody will get meals that they need whether or not their parents have filled out the paperwork, and then also to reduce kinds of stigma that might exist around being a, a free lunch kid. So this program somewhat conveniently rolled out in different states sort of at different times, uh, which let researchers try to study it. And they seem to show that schools that adopted community eligibility see a reduction in the number of kids in elementary school, especially and a little bit in middle school, who are getting suspended. They cite a long line of papers kind of showing that basically Better nourished kids have fewer behavioral problems. They acknowledge that suspensions is not exactly a count of behavioral problems because schools can enforce this differently. But unless you believe that there's a reason that adopting community eligibility would make administrators become less strict, uh, it appears to be the case that adopting community eligibility 
improves the behavior, at least, of the younger children, uh, very possibly by getting kids to um, actually eat food uh, by reducing stigmatization of it. So I don't know. That was that was nice to hear. It's it's nice when things work. Yeah, I do think that there are some things that kind of struck me about who in particular is taking advantage of this program. Because one of the things about community eligibility is apparently that a school is eligible for it if a certain number of its students would otherwise qualify because mm-hmm. of income, but the school has to accept that help, right? Yes. Like it has to make a decision to enroll. And unsurprisingly, not every school that is eligible chooses to enroll. And the researchers find that the schools that were eligible and chose not to enroll were slightly less disadvantaged than the schools where they chose to enroll, but were a lot more white. Uh-huh. Which is fascinating because they then say that the baseline rate of suspensions for schools that were participating in community eligibility was much higher than for eligible schools that weren't participating in community eligibility. So what makes this paper in particular interesting is that it seems like a straightforward materialist, you know, along the lines of the studies we've done on like, mm-hmm. you know, iodization of salt. Like if you give kids a healthy environment, like filling their minimal needs and not poisoning them, then they will be able to thrive. But if you look at kind of the noise around the data, it gets into this really tricky problem of when is suspension and the you know disciplining of behavior among in particular elementary school students a problem in and of itself for child learning and upon whom is that being visited. Mm -hmm. And I think what we see here is that this is something that can help a population that is otherwise going to be targeted by higher suspension rates and more disciplinary issues for reasons that probably do have one foot in malnutrition and other like, you know, structural systemic health issues, but that probably also have something to do with the way that the schools think about their students and what they think is going to be most helpful for them moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I also think, I mean, looking again, I mean, Jose's class is a a population of of three and four-year-olds, so I don't think there would be any suspensions uh, regardless. But my understanding of what the school is trying to do with community eligibility is that they are trying to promote social integration among a diverse set of students, right? That it's, I mean, you know, I don't know how sophisticated uh, these preschoolers are about about class and race and stuff, but it's it's very obvious to me uh, that, you know, a little bit less than half of the uh, students in the school, in the lower grades at least, seem like they are kind of white gentrifier kids, right? And then a majority of the students are black or Latino, but then, of course, they're class differentiations uh, within that, and some of the black kids are second-generation African immigrants, and some are, you know, African immigrants. So there's, you know, a, a kaleidoscope of, like, potential lines of social division present in a very diverse school system, and something they are trying to do is, like, start the day with all the kids sitting at a table and all eating the same breakfast, and that has something to do with kids' nutritional needs, but is also, like, a statement about what the school school community is and how it's supposed to operate, right? And they are discouraging, like, yuppie parents from making special yuppie meals that that their kids come and bring in, right? They are, like, trying to put everyone on an equal footing, right? And whether the school meal directly causes things or whether the school meal is a manifestation of an administratively determined 
desire to be integrative, you know, I think is going to be hard to tease out. Fair enough. Right, that it's, that it's like the decision to accept community eligibility says something about how the administrators and the PTA and everybody else are thinking about managing their school, uh, right? So, like, it could be that, like, this is a thing that works or it could just be that, like, this is a thing that people who want to have a leveling impact choose to do and then they, they you know, succeed through other means. Right. And the authors are pretty aware also that the period over which they're measuring results coincides with a period of higher awareness of the school-to-prison pipeline and problems with very punitive suspension policies. So, you know, they're, they do kind of make it clear that there's a certain amount of taking it with a grain of salt with their results because it's possible that there were widespread changes in school policies, although there really wasn't a whole lot of external, like, structural reform. The Obama administration's, you know, biggest stuff on this were really just studies on school discipline, and even those didn't happen until toward the end of the administration. But both in terms of school lunch and in terms of suspension, this does get at a certain kind of tension of the white gentrifier class, right? Which is that the same people who in theory want their children to be in an environment where they learn that there aren't meaningful differences among Mm -hmm. the kind of foods that kids eat are also just as a matter of socioeconomic status, the people who are most likely to be concerned about what kinds of things their child is ingesting. Yes. But so I, I dug back to, to get in touch with somebody who was involved in the crafting of this this legislation. And what he told me was that, like, this was great. You know, it's good to see a beneficial impact. But that he did not want to overcomplicate in people's minds, like, what actually the case for this policy is. Right? Because the way he explained it to me is that, look, eligibility for free and discount lunch necessarily involves these cutoff thresholds, right? And individual families will fluctuate above and below that threshold from year to year. And there is a lot of paperwork involved in doing it. And there is a lot of segregation in the American school system that like Garrison Elementary is actually quite unusual in being both community eligible and also having a really substantial population of people who would not qualify for discounted school lunches, but that the typical community eligibility school really is overwhelmingly composed of students who are eligible for discounted meals, and even more importantly, is composed of families who at some point over the course of the school cycle will be eligible, and that like really, really, truly at some level, the case for this is just to simplify it. Right, that like if you can look at the administrative data and say there is a large low-income population being served here, we are just going to give everybody the meals, that the financial cost of doing that compared to making everyone fill out these forms is tiny and just make everybody's lives easier. You get a handful of kids get food that they might otherwise not get. And I do think it's a fairly powerful case just for – universalism in general, right? Like if going back to the original school lunch law, right, if the way that had been written was just that like public schools in America are all going to give free lunch to all of their students and here's a funding stream for that, I think if you came back, you know, 70 years later and you were like, actually what we ought to do is create like a three-tiered system of paid lunch, half price lunch, free lunch, that the eligibility for those things should be related to eligibility for SNAP but different from – people would say, like, no, like that's not a – like that's not a good idea. Like don't don't run a program that way, right? And, you know, I don't think you would necessarily even demand like elaborate 
studies, right? I mean, like an interesting fact is like we don't means test public schools at all, right? Like obviously not all, but most parents could afford to pay $50 a month in tuition for public school. That would be a huge bargain compared to like daycare. But we just like, we don't, right? Like it's a service. It's there. You could just make the food part of that. It would be, you know, it's nice. It's simple. I do think though that when we talk about universal stuff, this does strike me as an important contrast with the kind of desalinization because, you know, this happened quietly, albeit during a time of democratic hegemony in Congress. And it would have been very easy for this kind of thing to get blown up as, you know, giving things to people who don't need them. The entire point of the school lunch program as it exists is that it's only for the people who really need it. We shouldn't be spending more money to subsidize, you know, the food buying habits of the middle class, etc. So, as far as a child's nutrition is concerned, literally, like, iodization of salt and having a healthy lunch, like, both of these are important for the literal same reason that nutrition is important for growth and growth is important for development. So when we think about kind of a healthy environment for children, this is just one of many ways in which it's really hard to distinguish between things that government should be doing just to guarantee equality of opportunity and things that government is doing to provide a safety net for particular populations that might get politically polarized. Yeah, and I mean, another thing about that, right, though, I mean, this is a question where where universalism, an interesting second-order consequence, because as you were saying, right, is that, like, parents, fussy parents about what their kids eat, right, get sort of drawn into the school lunch program by community eligibility. And I, I wonder, you know, looking around the room, looking at their parents, if, you know, is phase two going to be that this increases advocacy, right, among people with political clout for improving the school lunch, right? Which to me is always, like, one of the key cases for universalism, right? Is that, like, if everybody is going to ride the bus, then the people who have a good shot at, like, getting the bus fixed are invested in in the system. Um, and, and, you know, you see that in a lot of aspects of, of schools. I mean, again, though, I do want to be clear that, like, Diver- like integrated diverse schools are pretty rare. So the dynamics of what actually happens in them, I mean, they're important to me and they're important sociologically. I think not like quantitatively significant in terms of like determining what happens in America. Like the the main impact of community eligibility is on very, very high poverty schools and just sort of simplifies people's lives and helps you plan easier. So with that, you know, if you are trying to plan your own life, you should be planning to subscribe to the Weeds newsletter at vox.com slash weeds hyphen newsletter. You should be planning to join the Weeds Facebook group. Uh, You should be planning to listen to the Weeds on Friday. And, uh, you know, with that, thanks to all of you. Thanks to Griffin Tanner, who is now a producer slash engineer. Congratulations. And we will see you on Friday.